Audi. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Now, there are many different types of podcast listener. Some casual who might just tune in because they see a topic or indeed a person on a podcast that might interest them. Some who listen from time to time and others who really, really get into the genre. My guest today was a huge podcast fan until one day she realised, hey, this is actually something I can do myself. I know her because we're both administrators of a podcast support group on Facebook. I think we've got about 45,000 members so far. It was set up by Helen Zaltzman of many podcasts fame. And I have to say that not only is my guest a wonderful, knowledgeable member of the team, who also has a brilliant podcast, also she's the biggest supporter of everything podcast podcast, as well as being an expert birder, which is what her podcast is about. Although she will absolutely protest that she's not any of those things in her usual self-deprecating manner. I've watched Susie's travels online and been amazed by all the places she's visiting in pursuit of her passion for birding. As you'll find out as you listen to this conversation, Susie is not only the casual birder, as is the name of her podcast, but she's also a casual adventurer, a quiet, unassuming, self-deprecating one at that. But definitely the spirit is there and you will absolutely love her stories. Let's give her the proper big travel podcast introduction. It was a passion for birding and indeed podcasting that led Susie Buttress to establish the wonderful Casual Birder podcast for which she travels extensively, tracing birds and indeed other wildlife. We discuss her recent expedition cruise to the Falklands, South Georgia and Antarctica, dealing with anxiety when having heard two people sadly lost their lives on the same journey, how whale watching in Baja, California brought her to tears, the truly awesome experience of witnessing a solo eclipse in Oregon and feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Susie Buttress from the Casual Birder podcast is on the Big Travel Podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. First of all, I was a listener for many, many years. I was a listener well over a decade and didn't ever expect to have my own show. I was running a fan group for the network that I support and people in there had their own podcasts. And I was like, 
oh, I thought you had to be a celebrity to have a podcast or someone like well-known. I didn't know that regular people could have podcasts. So it started me thinking about it. And I was getting more and more enthusiastic about the possibilities of having a podcast. And one day I was at dinner with my husband and he said, yeah, but you're not going to have a podcast, are you? I said, no, not me, no. And as soon as I said that, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, why not? Five months later, <laughs> I started my show. Why do you and think I'm, he didn't want you to have one? First of all, it seemed, again, it seems a bit like, well, you know, influencers and I don't know, more professional people have shows. But I think once he actually heard mine, and he was really, he's been supportive so much through it. But once I actually had one recorded and he heard it, you know, he was like, Oh yeah, this is, I can see how, and it's a great memory store for the, the trips we do and being in the moment of those trips and then having a record of those trips. That's what I love about podcasting though. I love that sort of, the, there's no gatekeepers. And I think even as a professional broadcaster, when I started this podcast was, oh gosh, I think it's five years ago now. That's fine. I think we started around the same time, didn't I we? I think we did. Yeah. But there's, you know, I was thinking I'm kind of waiting for someone to invite me to do a podcast and nobody did. And I just thought, well, you know, I might as well do it. And a lot of people sort of say is like, you know, how did you do it? What was the, you know, how would you keep doing it? Which actually is quite difficult sometimes. Yes. <laughs> sometimes you're like when you start something, and I say this with any project at all, the way that I viewed it was if I don't start now, how will I feel this time next year when I could have done, you know, if I could have had a whole year of doing it and I just launched it. And, you know, it's probably easier for me to do that because I'm used to, to talking and writing and editing. But for, for someone else who's not used to it, I think it's a really admirable thing to do. And you seem to have really, you're just so enthusiastic about it. It's amazing. It's really filled a couple of holes that I had in terms of, I love talking, I love speaking and podcasting is a great way to hear your own voice, but I like helping people as well. So the same thing you said about no gatekeeping, um, my show's about birding and I've always been a, quite a solo birder, but I've just gone out and looked at birds. And it wasn't until I got more involved in sort of looking at things on the internet and thinking about groups that I realized how much gatekeeping there is in birding. Oh no, you have to have had years of experience and keep lists and keep notes. And, you know, you're not a proper birder unless you have a scope and, and all this sort of thing. And I just feel, now I know there's, when I, when I just talk to people about birds, I know there's lots of people who, who just enjoy birds, but they don't like to say they're a birder because then that implies this whole lot of other things. In a way, I'm just trying to share experiences and hopefully enthuse others to go and try the thing. I'm not, I'll make mistakes along the way. And hopefully by sharing those mistakes, it gives others a spark to try things themselves. Right from the very first episode, I wanted people to feel that actually anyone can go out and enjoy birds. It didn't matter who you were, where you lived, uh, what experience you had. It was a valid thing to do. And it was the same with podcasting. The reason I learned all the things about podcasting was by interacting with other podcasters. And what blew me away right at the beginning was realizing that podcasters are a really generous community, that people will share their knowledge and share how to do things. And there's no kind of like, no, well, I know how to do it, but you'll have to learn your own way. It was like, no, everyone was really helpful. And things like the podcaster support group on Facebook, which is how we met, there's such a range of experiences in there. You know, there are people from complete novice up to really experienced people like you that have worked on the radio, that have been in broadcasting for a long, long time, but all willing to share. No, no kind of like, no, I know that knowledge, but you're not allowed to have it. The warmth of the community, the sharing, that just really spoke to me. Plus, it put me in touch with so many people around the world that both in podcasting and in birding, that I, I've i got friends all over the place now. And I, I actually didn't have very many 
social connections just through circumstance you know when I was younger yeah we used to go out a lot but then you kind of settle down you're doing your job you come home and we don't have children so it's hard to maintain those relationships that you might have if you've got children and your children know other children and I mean we were happy but it's an added element to your life when you've got connection with people and I've met so many amazing people through podcasting and and the birding and I've got friends everywhere and I just love it. I have been listening to your podcast, um, oh. <laughs> some lovely episodes. It's really peaceful and relaxing and I particularly like it when you go off on a wander. For example, the Malibu episode when you're wandering around being bitten by bugs despite having your bug repellent on and uh, you're you're incredibly well-travelled. I think you're probably uh, more well-travelled than I am at the moment actually. I used to go away a lot more before I had the kids. Um, but you you seem to always be off on some incredible adventure. So I, before I get on to the travels, I do actually, you know, you're, you're doing the podcast, you're, you're birding. Do you have a day job as well to, to add into this mix? <laughs> and, and of course, I love my day job. Of course, um, because they're all listening right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I've recently actually taken a step back in my job. I've been very fortunate that my husband is a big supporter. I mean, he's kind of like the biggest sponsor of the show. And I've got so much enjoyment from doing the podcasting that I really wanted that change of life balance. I was getting really stressed out in the in the job that I had previously. I'm still with the same company, but I changed roles and I took a step back and I work three days a week now. And it it's lovely to have that. And I, I really value the team that I work in, but I wanted that extra time to mm. develop my show because um, I really want the show to to grow. I've been doing it for just over five years now, similar to to yours. And um, I've had some stops and starts within that because sometimes, you know, I'm not producing episodes regularly. I, I absolutely love, love it so much. And I've learned so much through it as well. My skill set, because I've learned all these different technical, you know, elements has just really gone through the roof. And I, I feel such a, a, a more well-rounded person from just having the podcast. So I don't want to give it up. So we better get on to your travels. But actually, there's so many, this is the thing, I, I make no notes and it's just a conversation. And I do want to geek out about the podcast, the podcasting side of it. But uh, yeah, stop geeking out about podcasts. Let's get on to your travels. Um, I don't Ooh, even geek know. Geek out about that. Yeah, let's geek out about <laughs> travels. So I don't know whether to start with your recent big trip which looks amazing. And I have to say that on my travels, I do think of you, by the way, every time I see a bird and I think, I must photograph that and send that to Susie and ask what it is, because I have no idea if it's a sparrow or a pelican. I might have a, you know, a vague idea between a sparrow and a pelican, but, but, you know, I have no sort of bird knowledge whatsoever. So I do think about you on my travels, but you you travel more extensively than I do at the moment. And you just, well, tell us where you've just got back from. Uh, well, I've just immediately got back from Norfolk, but I'm oh, sure it's not Norfolk that. that you were talking about. <laughs> well, I like Norfolk. It um, is a place of No, we've, we've started spending our Christmases there and it's just lovely for, for birds. But yeah, last November, we went to Falkland, South Georgia and at the Antarctic Peninsula. So we were away for just about three weeks traveling on a, a, it is a cruise, but it's known as an expedition cruise. So there were only 150 or 140 passengers uh, and the crew. And it's a fairly small ice strengthened ship to allow you to go to these areas. So it's not like you can do big cruises, you know, on the big cruise lines there, but those ones are just cruise buys. You're not allowed to stop. Um, and land on the Antarctic Peninsula because they only allow 100 people at a time. 
And so you need to be on a small ship to get the opportunity to go off. But yeah, I've just come back from there. You know, it was same old, same old, but it was absolutely awesome. It was, and people say, oh, once in a lifetime trip. And normally it would be, but this is our second time. We were extremely fortunate to be able to go um, about eight years ago. Sadly, my husband's parents passed and we used the money from that. John had always wanted to go to Antarctica and we used the money from that to go because it is extremely expensive. And that was it. We were never going to go again. That was our once in a lifetime. But uh, an opportunity came up with someone that we'd done a whale watching trip with. He was doing a, he was leading a trip down there and we'd enjoyed the whale watching trip so much that we decided to use a lot of our savings, which is a bit dodgy, but we did that. And um, But I don't think we'll ever be able to go again because, you know, it really is a very expensive trip. So I was determined, especially with the show, that I wanted to make the most of it and get the most out of it, you know, get recordings while I was down there, get interviews while I was down there and really, really look at it through the eyes of sharing the experience with others, because it is something that, you know, not all of us are able to do. And it's just, you can watch the nature documentaries, but hearing about it in, well, from a regular Joe or Joanne's point of view <laughs> is kind of my, my point. The, the, um, Slightly galling thing was that uh, I found out when I got back that um, three other podcasts had also done an Antarctica trip in November, two weeks before us. Um, it's not a it's not a race or anything, but <laughs> they had all gone on the same trip, and it was a birding focused trip. And mine wasn't. Mine was a general a general sort of trip for you know anyone could have gone on it. Obviously, you'd have to be interested in nature to go. And so I learned from their podcasts that there were extra things I could have done to enhance the trip from a birding point of view. And so that was a bit sad to find that out afterwards and think about it. So it's it. going to be a, a third trip, a third, three times in a lifetime opportunity. Um, <laughs> yes, I would have to do very well on my podcast to be able yeah, to go exactly, down again. Yeah, just to <laughs> ramp up the sponsorship. Um, tell, I mean, tell us about the trip. What, what really, what was the moment that really stands out? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I can't. There's not there one any. moment yeah, that stands amazing. out. So there were, there were so many different parts. So we uh, we started off in Buenos Aires. We had been there before last time. So we had a bit of an idea about what we wanted to do. We, we were, were going to focus totally on birds. We weren't interested in the culture side because we'd done that last time. And I we were there for such a short period of time. It had to be the birds. So we had one full day there. And there's a reserve on the coast that's uh, just you know, it's a very short walk from where we were staying, like half an hour's walk if we were walking through some of the really nice areas of Buenos Aires to get to this big nature reserve. So we spent a day there. Um, then we went down to Ushuaia, um, which is where you start the cruise. And we had half a day there while we were waiting for the boat. And again, there was a, a sort of reserve area with um, lookout points there. So we were able to go birding there. And we'd already had a walk around Ushuaia last time. So um, again, we just concentrated on the birds. So I, I do apologise to the people of Buenos Aires and the people of Ushuaia. Um, totally ignored them. Yes. <laughs> no, we, we did meet people and they're lovely people, but um, you know, our focus was on the birds. Um especially as so many of those birds we'd never, ever seen before. So we were exploring and discovering. Um, then we boarded the cruise, and I can tell you a little bit about how that uh, how the cruise operates. Um, we went to Falkland first, so we spent a couple of days in uh, the Falkland Islands uh, visiting the main Falkland area. We went to Stanley and went to Gypsy Cove, which is um, a cove fairly close to Stanley. 
And we also went to one of the smaller islands. We were um, due to visit a different island as well, but the weather conditions and the tide conditions didn't allow us to. And that's one of the things when you go on this cruise, I mean, it was we were due to go two years ago and of course the pandemic stopped it. And then we were due to go last year and pandemic stopped it again. But some people did manage to go last year on some of the cruises and, and hearing that, you know, if people got COVID on the way down there, they might not actually be allowed to board the ship. So you've paid all this money and you might not actually make it, or you might get on the ship and get COVID and be confined to your cabin. Mm-hmm. And so you spent all this money again to go to these fantastic places. And you might just be looking out a little porthole, watching everyone else go off to see penguins. So th- there was a quite a lot of risk involved in whether the, 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 thing would actually work but it it did so we spent this couple of days in Falklands didn't manage all the landings but what we did manage was was great then you sail for another two days to get to South Georgia which is uh, South Georgia is just stunning there are there are lots of different bays you're allowed to to sort of stop in I know nothing about South Georgia okay so South Georgia I've been to Argentina obviously I've got a visual of what the uh, Falkland Islands look like like and also Antarctica but no South Georgia means nothing to me and it didn't to me before I went down the first time. It was just by happen chance that the trip we chose eight years ago, we needed to go over Christmas because we needed the time off work to encompass it. And it just happened. This cruise did Falkland, South Georgia and Antarctica. And at that time, I knew about the Falklands. I didn't know if I necessarily wanted to go there. I didn't know what was there. But yeah, okay, it was part of the trip. Actually, it's really, it's really strange going to the Falklands because they are – it's like a um there's lots of hills and and flat areas and coves beautiful beaches and stanley is a town like any other you know there's supermarkets there's hotels there's and it's a bit of a shock but you just kind of accept that and then you go to south georgia which again i knew nothing about um and that's just mountains and glaciers and um the the beaches are mostly sort of cobble or uh, stony beaches there are penguins, there are fur seals. There's so many animals on South Georgia that use it as a place to breed. There are some people manning um, some stations there, but I think the total population is something like 10, you know, uh, of this massive, massive area. And um, it's a wildlife spectacle. And if you're ever going down that area, if you ever have the chance to actually do Falkland and South Georgia and the Antarctic, that's the way to do it. And this particular trip we chose this time had four days on South Georgia, which meant we would visit several different areas and get more enriched experiences. Um, and I can't, I can't uh, speak highly enough of it. And there's, there's a real good news story from there. So the original times that people used South Georgia was for whaling. You know, that was a big industry. And that's why we had people going down to those areas because there were so many whales then and they were perfect for killing to use the products from them. But the people visiting uh, South Georgia on these ships, obviously they brought vermin with them. They brought rats, mice, and that decimated the populations of the native birds there because they had no land-based predators. And of course, rats and mice eat eggs and will eat small chicks and just decimated them. And there are two endemic birds on South Georgia. The South Georgia pipit is one that was down to extremely low numbers, extremely endangered. And they've gone through a a period of eradicating the rats and mice, the rodents on the island, which, you know, isn't great for the rodents, but (laughs) we have to think about you know, species that we're going to lose. And they've they've had a really successful program 
which now means that I think they finally became rodent free three years ago. And the birds have started to come back. You know, they've been able to produce mm. and um, and reproduce. And um, the numbers are starting to go up, which is actually absolutely fantastic. So eight years ago when I went, there was very, very little chance of me seeing a South Georgia pipit. And this time we saw several and heard them singing. And that was just amazing to know that they were back. And then from there, it was two days further south to the Antarctic Peninsula. So then you're passing icebergs. You're seeing all sorts of amazing, I mean, the seas can be very, very stormy. Mm. So chances are you're going to be seasick. Um, but we spent a lot of our time up on deck doing what's known as pelagic birding. So looking at, looking for birds that are ocean going, that live their lives on the ocean and only come back to land to breed. And so that's the albatrosses, um, shearwaters, birds called prions, which are smaller seabirds. I mean, there's even little storm petrels, which are about the size of maybe a starling. And it's hard to believe that these birds can live in such atrocious conditions as they get down there. But just, you know, wherever you turn, you've got awe and wonder. And we were able to make some landings on the Antarctic Peninsula. So we would see penguin colonies. We saw different ones as we went through. So there were Magellanic penguins on Falkland. There were Gentoo and Chinstrap and macaroni penguins at South Georgia. And then when we went further south, we were seeing Adeli penguins and uh, still some Gentoos. Oh, and can I forget, how can I forget the king penguins on South Georgia? I mean, they are just, I can't help but anthropomorphize. I, mm. I really try not to, but you know, hey, it's part of the enjoyment of seeing birds. And they are so inquisitive. And you, there are very, very strict rules about how close you can get to animals. Obviously, you see them, you want to hug them, you know, you just want to be right close to them, but you can't. I mean, the fur seals are quite dangerous, so you have to be aware of those all the time. They can move really quickly, and um, if you're bitten by that, that can be really bad news. And they can be quite aggressive, especially the males, so that's a bit of, you know, it's quite hard keeping an eye on those and still enjoying seeing the birds around you. But king penguins are just amazing, and I was, you know, very often you would do things like, you know, I'd be recording a video or something and then I'd finish that and turn around and I'd find there was a king penguin right behind me that walked up behind me just to kind of peer at me and see you know what I was and you, you couldn't help but talk to them because it just felt like they were because they're quite tall birds you know they come up mm -hmm. to about your hip and uh, they they just have a look about them that makes you feel like you want to speak to them um, so but, what, um what did you say what do you say to well them? Mostly it was a uh, good day. How are you? <laughs> nice to see you. <laughs> Did they talk back? <laughs> no, they didn't. I mean, they I've seen happy feet, you, but... right? So they're not exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, absolutely. I've got videos. Uh, I posted one in the week of um, some Gen 2 penguins, one chasing another extremely fast through a colony. I just never knew they could move that fast on land. And at one point they bowl over another penguin. And I, I just feel it's ripe for putting a voiceover on that. One of the things you do when you go down there, one of the things that's sort of drummed into you and in a really positive way is how so few people have the opportunity to go down there and the habitat loss is critical. You know, that that is happening. That if you go there, you you should come back as an ambassador for all the things that are right about the area and really help people understand how crucial it is that we make changes to our lives so that so that we protect all these environments. Um, so I do feel quite disrespectful thinking about putting a, a, a comic voiceover over one of my videos, but I'm also going to make sure that any other videos that I do, you know, I do explain a bit more about being down there. Yeah. So how, how does it feel to set foot on the Antarctic Peninsula? So as it happens this time, 
I didn't. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was hoping for a moment, you know, I'm standing yeah, there no, on last... the bottom of the earth. I'm looking at the, the, you know, the world well, in it's, a different it's... place. Yeah, it's quite place. hard, actually. I did do it last time. The, the reason I didn't this time, so around the peninsula, there are islands and we, we'd stopped at those. But if you were saying you were purely actually on the Antarctic Peninsula, this is your opportunity to step on it and say, yes, I was here. And when I did that the first time back in 2014, that was a moment. It's quite hard to believe you're there because you've been, it's, it's hard to believe that you are on this massive continent and you're on the edge of it because you've been on these islands where you can't see, you know, so it all feels like it must all be Antarctica and it kind of is. But I have to say, yeah, the first time I was actually on it, I could say, yes, I am on it, but it didn't change me at all because the experiences I had as a whole were, were part of it. This time it was a really bad weather day. The seas were just about at a point they could use these uh, inflatable ribs to take us ashore it was a really bad snowstorm, but we were there and, and people obviously wanted to be there. And I actually chose to stay on the ship. I'd been on the Antarctic mm-hmm. Peninsula itself. And it might sound a bit churlish to say, no, I'm not going. But actually, I I get very anxious in those boats. And um, while they they operate as safely as they can and they're very, very strict about how, how you're in those boats, I just don't like riding in these ribs. You're sort of sitting on an inflated um, edge. And um, I went through quite a few anxiety attacks. Yeah, I can imagine. On the ship. I already knew I would because I already knew I was going to be nervous. And I was trying to be very um, brave about it. And, you know, the first couple I videoed, I had my my GoPro on my head harness, you know, looking like a miner with a miner's lamp, you know, videoing everything. Because I thought that way I won't, I won't panic. But it didn't stop me panicking. And I did panic. And that doesn't make it very pleasant for other people around me, even though I tried to contain it. Um and um, it's very rare for there to be any problems. Um, unfortunately, while we were down there, um, our sister ship did have an incident where two people lost their lives on a on a rib. Um, and it's very, very rare for that to happen. And we still don't know exactly what happened because there's an investigation going on. And we'll obviously it may take a year for that information to come out. But that doesn't help if you're already anxious that, you know, because that had happened in what we had been told was it had happened in calm waters as it approached shore. So we don't know what went wrong to make that happen. So I'm guessing um, that a rib is a small boat that you leave. Yeah, the, it's an inflatable boat. It takes about 12 people. Uh, there's, there's an expedition guide who will, who will be driving it like a, like a um, motorboat, you know, with a, a little putt putt motor at the back and a handle for steering. Um, and then you all sit round on the inflated pontoons around. So you don't sit in the boat, which when we went to Antarctica last time, they had boats that you sat in. So I felt much more comfortable, but a lot of the ships now use these ribs and they're called Zodiacs. And um, so you sit around the outside and there's a rope sort of running through along the outside that you just hold onto the rope. But, you know, I'm not the most nimble of people and obviously I'm a little bit fearful. And so anytime the weather was, you know, it was particularly uh, rocky or, or the landing looked like it was going to be something that I just didn't feel comfortable doing. I decided to stay on the boat. And so a couple of times I stayed on the ship and did my observations from the ship. And that was fine for me because um, I know that I don't like walking in deep snow. There was a couple of times where you had to get out. There was one in particular where you had to get out. They had cut snow steps, which is, you know, absolutely amazing what they do. They, they really make it as accessible as possible. 
But as soon as you're off the snow steps and into the snow, you know, I I really don't like walking in snow where suddenly you might go down to your knee or something. And a few years ago, I broke my ankle um, getting onto a small boat. So there's that all mixed in with everything as well. Um, so I'm just a bit of a mess, you know, and I go to these once in a lifetime or twice in a lifetime places. And then, but I know my limits and I know I should push through them and I know I should be braver, but I end up being a real anxious mess. And it's really unpleasant for anyone else around me, apart from being unpleasant for me. So I could see when there were cases when actually I didn't want to go ashore. Uh, There was one particular place where we went, where there were very few penguins and masses and masses of fur and elephant seals. And I was like, I'm not going ashore that day. That day I stayed on the ship and I did some recordings looking at the, the mountains and everything around the weather conditions. We had whales in the bay. I was watching the whales and I was watching the penguins. So I didn't have a lesser experience, but I didn't want all that anxiety about going ashore. If you're you're on the ship already in Antarctica, you're, you're braving seas that up until not so long ago, only explorers and trained and possibly crazy people would be braving and the news also comes through to you I'm assuming that two people have died doing exactly what you would be doing I I don't I can't blame you at all for being anxious about that and I know you have to balance risk and I mean it is very very rare for people to die on these and it was just very unfortunate you know it's a it's an awful situation for those people you know and all those around them their families to know those people are never coming back and you don't Um, know what happened no no because they Obviously, the the company were very careful about what they said about it. They told us because they thought we might hear you had limited internet access. So you could, you know, potentially have seen news if it had been out in the world, which I think that was. And uh, yeah, obviously, the company is going to be very careful about what they say and they're, they're, the, the explore, expedition staff will be because they don't know until the investigations happen. They don't actually know. All we were told was that, you know, it would be in calm conditions. There'd been some sort of strange wave activity that had flipped the boat. And unfortunately, two people had lost their lives through it. So it would just be speculation to know what had happened. But that was enough to, you know, for the number of people that have died in rib accidents down in Antarctica compared to people that have died crossing the street, you know. So you do have to have those levels of risk. It's just that and you have to think about those levels of risk for yourself. It's just that I'm a naturally quite cautious person. And lots and lots of people went ashore, had absolutely fantastic times, came back and told me, my, my husband went, he's much more, well, he's much more risk accept- accepting than I am. And, you know, it's never done him any harm. He's a very fit person. I'm not a very fit person. So I, I consider all the elements, you know, I'm not, I'm a bit ungainly. I'm not, I'm not nimble. I've usually got a lot of stuff with me. So I'm loaded down. I'm not going to move quickly. And so I sort of weigh all that up. I know my limitations. And so that, that was the reasons that I, I didn't go sure. Um, I really admire you doing it anyway. Uh, you remember that book? I never read it, but the, the title has always sort of stayed with me. It's uh, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. I have the book. Do I've you? never read it. No, but the title's good enough, <laughs> See, right? Exactly. Yeah, who needs to read it? Um, I, uh, I used to have a fear of flying, actually, um, which seems crazy, you know, considering that I've always travelled. Um, even before I was a travel uh, journalist. But um, I I knew that if I had to go home, at least, you know, if I wasn't going to go on a holiday somewhere, which I still wanted to do, but if I had to go home and see my parents in Spain, I had to to go on a plane and I would sit there holding on to the armrests for the whole journey, just barely taking it off. If I wanted some food or whatever, I'd be, you know, taking it off and put it back on, like absolutely petrified. 
And you know, one of my my sons is going through anxiety about attending school at the moment. And you know, we were talking about the the anxiety sometimes in in starting the podcast, and you know, me being on the radio for the first time and shaking, and then getting used to it. And actually, in many times, the only way, you know, talking about that flying example, in fact, going to school, and this is what I tell my son, is that the only way to get over it is to to keep doing it. But when you are doing something that is actually potentially dangerous you know getting into an inflatable small boat in the Antarctic and you know it's cold it's freezing the seas are unpredictable it is potentially dangerous that is not the anxiety again I've been reading about it with Seb Uh, we've talked about you know that sort of flight or uh, fight or flight response and how actually sometimes the, the the panic is unjustified it's like the smoke alarm going off when the the toast is being burnt but actually in your situation there you know it is quite a dangerous situation potentially look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do i even say other than hey <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I think it was dangerous from my point of view because I might have panicked. And so I would have added to the danger. I mean, I, I did lots of trips. And actually, the very last excursion that we did on the um, Antarctic Peninsula, the very last one we did before we came home, it was the absolutely most perfect rib experience I could have had. But I made the decision not to go ashore. It was the one where they'd cut the steps into the thing. And I knew it was the last one we were going to have. And John, my husband, was like, you are going to so regret it if you don't go ashore. And I was like, no, I know that I'm not going to work well with walking around on the snow I won't be able to enjoy the animals because I'll be constantly thinking about am I going to go down a hole am I you know I'm stay on the ship but it was a beautiful beautiful day it was a calm bay it was lovely uh, loads of penguins around in the water we had gone away with a specific group on the expedition ship so there were a couple of different like travel groups on the ship and John had mentioned to the leader of our group that what a shame Susie couldn't come ashore because she just felt she couldn't come on the snow it, what a shame they didn't just run a rib ride today that could have just gone down the bay and they took that on board. And I, I really am thankful for them to do that. So they radioed back to the ship and said, is it possible that we could do a, a rib ride? And there were actually a few of us that had stayed on the ship because we knew we couldn't manage the shore. And so we all got into this rib and we had, I think we had the best experience because it was a beautiful, calm day. We just rode around the bay and we were so close to the penguins, being able to watch them get in and out of the water. It was just a magical experience. So that last day you know that was perfect earlier on there had been some very dodgy sea conditions that had made for some might say exciting rides back some might say terrifying rides back depending on your (laughs) risk acceptance and that was where it, it really brought home to you that things can happen in fact on the way back not to put too much of a gloom on things we actually stayed that extra day down in antarctica before turning north uh, the captain had made the decision to keep us down there one more day because there was a really bad storm that had been in the Southern Ocean in the Drake's Passage on the way back to Antarctica. And two days before, one of the other ships that had been down there had unfortunately, well, earlier in the holiday, had unfortunately had another rib accident. And on their one, one of the pontoons exploded or something happened and someone broke their leg. 
well, you have no medical facilities down there. So that ship had had to turn back north a bit earlier to get this person into hospital. And in doing so, they'd gone across the Drake Passage through this really bad storm. And you may have seen this on on the BBC News. Um, They got hit by a big wave that knocked out five cabins windows. And um, unfortunately, a woman died on that ship by being hit by debris. So that's three deaths that happened while we were down there. Now, I didn't find out about that one until we were back, but we went through the the back of that storm coming back. And it was, you know, we had one night when um, we had a very big role in the ship and um, it was just before dinner. And uh, so they had to shut the restaurant again because they'd lost all of the soups and salads. Everything had gone flying. But unfortunately, two people in one of the lounge areas had just stood up as the ship rolled and they went over and one guy um, was injured quite badly and his wife got lots of facial injuries. They were, I think, both okay following that. But, um, but you know, it's quite scary to be on a ship. And yes, you know that they are built to withstand a lot of stuff. I think it's a fear of not knowing. Going back to your airplane thing, I actually went through a period of being quite scared of flying. I love flying. I love flying. I love the whole thing about it. And for about three or four years, um, about 15 years ago, I suddenly started getting quite nervous about flying. And um, I would be like you, you know, actually petrified um, and convinced that each flight was my last. Mm-hmm. And actually, one of the things that kind of got me over it was this, um, I think it was when I was going down to Antarctica last time, um, I bought a GoPro and I video. Whenever I'm going anywhere, I video takeoffs and landings. And because I'm videoing them, it's giving me a record of how takeoffs and landings go. Cause I know they're like the worst parts of the flight. You know, they're the things when, if anything's go wrong, likely it will happen then. And so it's made me realize that actually planes can be quite resilient. And, you know, you've got expert people maintaining them and flying them. And by really focusing on the takeoff, knowing, okay, now we're taxiing. Now we're going to take off, you know, and, and some of the bigger planes take an awful long time to get off that runway. And you're thinking, is it going to go? Is it going to go? <laughs> but it, it kind of makes me a bit more mindful because I'm videoing that. And that's one of the things that I try to do with this rib rides. I thought if I video it, I'm thinking about what am I showing in my video? It's kind of taking me out of the moment, but making me conscious of what's happening. But I couldn't do that all the time. And when there was the rough conditions, I, I couldn't do that. When we first flew into Ushuaia, it's a very interesting runway because it's um, built on a piece of land that's, um, I think, uh, uh, some of the land is artificially created. So the runway, each end of the runway just goes off into the sea and there's mountains all around. So you're coming in like over mountains quite close and then you're coming in and you're really close to the sea. It's one of these ones when as you're coming into land, it's just sea under you and you can't see ahead. So you just look out the window and all you can see is we're going down over the sea. We're going down over the sea. Yeah, hopefully at some point there's going to be (laughs) land there. Um, and when I came back, I should have done this before I went, but when I came back, I looked at the airport on the map and, you know, did the whole Google thing about, you know, zooming right in. And yeah, you can see where the approach is and you can see, and I, I've only ever done that one other time. There's somewhere in Greece that I went, I can't quite remember which island it was, but again, you came in and, you know, it was right over the water until the last minute when you touched down. Mm. And if you don't know that in advance, it can be pretty yeah, freaky. I've had that with mountains as well. I've had it with sea, but I forget somewhere, some European 
destination um where you're landing and you're like we're going down in the mountains <laughs> and it's because you've got the mountains that look like they're just there but they're not you know you've got the runway sort of in the normal flat place at the bottom of it I think you're an adventurer Susie you're an ad- <laughs> a re- reluctant adventurer the birds <laughs> the birds are pushing you out of your comfort zone that absolutely is it actually it's the it's the wanting to see these things and honestly I am I'm really lazy and, you know, that's how I started as a casual birdie. You know, it's just seeing birds in my garden. But then you realise there's more to see out there. So, yes, it's having that interest that pulls you. But I've still got those limitations on me. <laughs> Don't better talk about some of the other destinations you've been. You mentioned whaling. I know you've been birding in Not LA. whaling, whale Not watching. Whaling. Sorry, whaling. whaling. <laughs> Yeah, such a difference. Yes, (laughs) I much prefer watching the whales than actually killing them. Uh, No, I had um, absolutely fabulous experience. We went uh, on a a trip to um, Baja California a couple of years ago with Mark Carwardine. He's a naturalist and broadcaster, and he was the tour guide. And it was him that we went to Antarctica with this time because we had such a fabulous time. And he's such a brilliant speaker, um, really generous with his knowledge. And we just thought if he's going to Antarctica, we want to be there with him, um, which is how we ended up going again. So, yeah, we went to Baja, California. We had this small yacht. It was a motorboat. It was 24 passengers. And we sailed from San Diego down to Cabo San Lucas in on the tip of Baja, California. And it was a, I think it was a something like a 15-day trip. So it was quite a long trip. And we just stayed on the boat the whole time. and stopped at a couple of little sort of deserted islands along the way but mostly we were out in the waters spending time with whales and we saw so many species we saw blue whales and fin whales I mean seeing blue whales was just amazing one day there was I could see in the distance that the sea looked like it was boiling it looked like it was just erupting I I couldn't work out what it was it was just on the edge of where my binoculars would reach and we were getting closer and closer And it turned out to be thousands and thousands of dolphins that ended up around the boat for quite some time because they love bow riding. But as far as you could see, there were dolphins leaping out the water, churning up the water. That was just stunning. And um, the top, the, 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 the most fabulous experience of all was spending time in San Ignacio. I think it's called Lagoon. I've probably got that totally wrong. Um, I it's good got pronunciation though, as a Spanish me. speaker, that's good. It's a good pronunciation. Yes, San Ignacio, I think it is. And it's where the grey whales, one of the places grey whales go to give birth. So they spend their summers in polar regions, in the north northern polar regions. And then they migrate down to this area in Mexico to give birth. While they're there, they the the, the females can't eat. They, they They spend, I think, four or five months without eating. Um, because the food that they eat is all in the cold polar waters. So they come down here, but it's safe for them to give birth and they raise their young for the first, you know, sort of couple of weeks of their life or month of their life in this lagoon where it's really safe for them. But once they've like given birth and they're just waiting for the, the young whale to be old enough to travel far uh, north again, they're just kind of hanging out in the bay. And so there are these whale watching trips that that go there and they're quite well regulated as well. But you are able to, at times, if the whale approaches your boat and wants to, you can touch a whale because they do come really close. And I did get a chance to touch a whale that was right by us, a grey whale. Um, 
I can tell you it feels like pushing the flesh of a hard-boiled egg that's been peeled. It's that kind of texture, if you can okay, imagine, kind can, of yeah, soft that. rubber, kind of it mm. just gives. But to to look into the eyes of such a big creature that's right next to you and is interested in you, is it feels like that there's a real, honestly, and I'll probably do it now, but I always cry when I think about the whale experiences. Sorry. It's very, very emotional. The very first time I saw humpbacks, I got like that and it's never gone away. And just knowing that these creatures, sorry. And I love making people cry on the podcast. And you've done it to yourself. It's I've done it to myself. I yeah, didn't think I was going to, to, but I did. Um, yeah, I mean, when we were down in South Georgia, they were explaining about the the whaling stations and stuff. And I, I was in... I, I really couldn't control my emotions. It was so hard to hear about how we've treated those creatures. Mm. Um, the fact that whaling has mostly, you know, there, there are still some whaling countries, but mostly it's stopped now. So whales have come back, you know, the, the populations have increased, but they are such intelligent creatures. They have amazing social sort of lives and how we can just use animals for our own purpose it's just it's very hard to understand but i've had some fantastic experiences and yes this this whale looked me in the eye and it was right there it was just stunning um so yes excuse me one moment while i wipe oh, the tears no, away i'm such amazing. an emotional person it's amazing no i love it i am as well and I've, have I've you never... ever been whale watching i haven't no or whaling as i accused you of yes <laughs> no if i you... haven't i've oh, been dolphin you... watching right I'm... right there's mm. just something about seeing these whales in the water often out of the water when we were in antarctica there was um a session that the quick the word went round the ship and we all got up on deck there was a, a humpback breaching so that's when they sort of push themselves out of the water and they'll, they'll do this for a variety of reasons some things something that uh it might be to do with getting um uh parasites off their skin or whatever but i think it's mostly a sort of um social thing you know when they come out of the water and they land back mm. in often they're swinging their flippers and there's a lot of flipper slapping that they do and i think it's communication with other whales you know the noise of coming back down those low volume uh noises will travel and it's a way of well and maybe it's just joy you know who knows who that's knows? De- certainly yeah, how it feels it with be... dolphins they seem like they're just really enjoying stuff it sounds absolutely um, exhilarating really yeah, exhilarating and you're moments. right you know it really makes you think about the things that we've done to animals and god it's we're just so entangled in it i mean i'm i'm not a vegan uh, i'm a i'm a non-meat eater but i'm not a vegan and i had uh, my, my friend mark the vet a celebrity vet had him on the podcast not so long ago and you know, that when you start thinking about what we've done, it's like really difficult to untangle ourselves from everything we use, you know, that has been using a, an animal at, at some point. It's just, you know, from household products to to food, to clothing, to sports equipment, you know, it's really difficult to untangle that and and to know where to to, to draw the line. And, you know, I, I hope that as generations go on, we'll become more enlightened um, can continue to become more enlightened about things and maybe all you know think about these things a little bit more yeah so I understand that there are some cultural elements to this and you know there are some sustainability issues yeah. as well you know and and I'm I'm anti-hunting and I'm anti-killing animals um, generally um, but I do understand that for some places 
that's a, a really yeah. important cultural thing and mm. it's also a really important source of meat and for people who go hunting if they are using all of that and that is you know a main part of their diet and they they are able to kill quickly and cleanly I can accept it I never want to see it and I don't really want to know mm. about it but I can accept it but people that hunt for fun I cannot mm. understand at all and it's the commercialization that you know when it's one or two whales that are feeding communities I don't want to know about it, but I can understand it. But to know that thou- that, but that whales, species, certain species like the right whale, were hunted almost to extinction just so we could strip bits off them and then leave the rest. You know, mm-hmm. we weren't even using all of it. We were just using certain bits. And that is just, I, I, I cannot, it makes me feel sick to my stomach to think about it. Um, like you, we, we, we stopped eating meat. Well, we only stopped eating meat for it recently it was only in the last three years really um I don't yeah, mean it's just... interesting that you you only stopped in the last three years I think it's interesting that you stopped because most people don't I love you know I love the taste and I love you know the variety and, and it was actually quite hard on the ship this time because it's a yeah, it's it in the last happening. three years we've not really we've not really been places we don't go out to eat much so we've not really been anywhere where food has been provided um so it's quite easy to be vegetarian at home because you're in control of the food but to go somewhere where every every meal is provided and to stick to your guns because we're just ethical vegetarians mm. you know we could eat meat it's not going to kill us it's just for ethical reasons we've chosen to stop eating meat and you know to see the fantastic meals that were provided but we weren't having because <laughs> we had chosen not to was that was that was hard yeah, well um, done for sticking to your guns <laughs> because it must be you know funny like as a bird watcher particularly if you're looking at beautiful words out the birds out the window and then look, eating a chicken it's kind of yeah bizarre, which i was doing you know, chicken i was eating all the time and you do you see this little package in the supermarket yeah it's a piece of meat mm. you don't think where it's come from i think i was thinking more and more about if i had to get this meat for myself if i had to kill this animal just so that i could eat when there are alternatives i couldn't do it so if i can't do it then how can i go to a supermarket and grab a bit of meat and knowing that a lot of this meat is factory produced is on a huge scale and it's a major problem for the environment that we're feeding these animals to be kept in not great conditions just to become food for us i just again it's something that i i couldn't live with you're doing better than me i'm not a proper vegetarian i eat fish as well but you know i i do you know well i I still eat egg and cheese so yeah yeah i'm a dairy and me too i have dairy and i love dairy and the dairy industry is awful it's just overwhelming i think if we all do something you know exactly so yeah so we've you know yes i know we've made these you know big long um distance flights yeah Um, we're trying to yeah. yeah so we're trying to reduce those i was I speak it to Mark, actually, Mark Harwardine, who led our group, because all of the people that we met there, a lot of them are very well traveled themselves. They're always off on these nature holidays. They're obviously well, well, um, financed. <laughs> so they, yeah, yeah. they can do this. You know, it's a dream for us mm. to do these holidays and we, we do manage it occasionally, but uh, some people are traveling all the time on this kind of thing. But a lot of them also have a very conscious of what they're doing to the environment by flying and it's it's the whole thing about personal responsibility you know we all do what we can mm. but it is quite hard when you realize that pales a little bit into insignificance when you think about what the big companies yeah, are doing exactly and yeah. so it, mm. there is this kind of like oh and i know there's a movement amongst wildlife podcasters because you know we, we talk to each other we listen to each other's shows and and 
this whole thing about sustainable birding, about only doing low carbon birding, birding in your own area, birding you can only cycle to or use public transport to. And I really laud, you know, I, I really think that's a fabulous aim, but I don't think it's for everyone. And I don't think, and I, I don't think that those people should gatekeep others who do want yeah, to travel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I do think that if you do travel, you have to think in other ways, what can you do to kind of lessen your imprint if you're flying long distance are you contributing to any of these schemes that now there's there's controversy about whether those schemes work or not we do actually contribute there are various low carbon schemes but also what are you doing the rest of your life to mitigate and i have to say you know lifestyle changes we've been fortunate in that both of our jobs are able to be done from home so my commuting time has really reduced over the last three years because I'm working from home a lot more. So I'm not using the car as much. We've moved to an electric vehicle. So there's That's there's amazing. that element as well. I've still got my my diesel Corsa that, you know, is very old and I but you know, we don't use as much now because we're we're working from home. Um I'm very mindful about not buying too much and not wasting food and thinking carefully about that. But I'm not perfect in any way. But I just try to do just what I can. Something, isn't it? You know, I, I still I'd love to, to do more train. I really want to travel. I want to go everywhere. And I'd love to do more train journeys. But you know, if I'm hopping off back to see my parents in Spain in Malaga, I don't one. I don't have the money to take a train journey because it's really expensive. And two, I don't have the convenience of being able to travel for three days with just me and two children. It's just really difficult. It's bad enough, like getting all this stuff and you know and going and, and actually in the future I'd love I love a long train journey I've done a, done a few but you know it's just not practical at the moment but then I've never had a car I don't eat meat you know everyone everyone does exactly something, does you something. all you all feel, yeah. as long as you're mindful about it and you're actually trying to make a difference and not just consume 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 mm. then I feel that's something um, and that, you know, it's what you personally can live with. Some people couldn't live with having a car, couldn't live with taking foreign holidays. If you can live with that and you can make other changes, great. It's down to your, I, I really do feel it's down, but do it with a knowledge of what's going on in the world. Don't just blindly go off every five seconds on another flight holiday or whatever. One of my good friends, Lucy Siegel, is a, a well-known um, eco focused journalist and I did a little conference with her a few a uh, couple of months ago I was interviewing people on stage for her conference and she I said to her what what's the one thing we can do if we could all do one thing because she writes about fast fashion about you know the impact of travel transport everything uh, food and she said the the biggest thing you can do is not eat beef you don't have to be a vegetarian you know if you don't want to you don't have to give up the, the travel or possibly don't have to give up your car but the, if you were to do one thing the biggest thing is not eat beef that's what yeah, she said because I don't the know environmental the impact of of you know those beef herds and um how much habitat loss is happening it's quite hard to do your own research as well there's lots of conflicting information out there but just become more aware and yeah. and really consider do you need to have that thing do you we, need to have that? We've that had element? such a great conversation about everything, about the environment, about birding, about anxiety and <laughs> and, and and travel. And I've, I'm conscious we've only done like a couple of destinations and you've been to lots of places. So before I wrap it up, because I'm thinking about the listener who uh, might not have, you know, hours to sit and listen to us. I mean, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> why not? I mean, Joe Rogan does three hours. <laughs> exactly. Like, and I'm sure we're much nicer people than he is. Um, <laughs> I agree. Sorry, sorry. Joe, but you know, I'm true. sure he's a lovely person. Yeah. Joe, if you're listening, 
<laughs> come on and tell tell Lisa. <laughs> come, on, come on, I'll totally have him on the podcast. Yeah, is there any uh, anywhere else like destination or any travel experience that you're burning to tell me that we've not covered? I know you've been to many, many other places, but is it? Yeah, is there I've, I've been so lucky to travel, and you know, most of our traveling does involve looking for birds. So we will choose locations where where we know there are birds. I've not been on very many. Uh, group holidays. Uh, I'm very kind of, I, I like to find the birds myself. This year, we're going to Portugal on a birding holiday. We're, we're spending one week with a bird group uh, to learn about the birds in Portugal. And then we're spending the second week on our own to just look for birds ourselves and have a bit more of a relaxing holiday because I, I don't like to be set on a, I like to take my time when I'm birding. I don't like to think, oh, you've seen this bird, right? Let's rush off here and, and go there. So um, we're going to try and do a bit of both. And then uh, later on in the year, we're going to Panama, uh, again, birding. Uh, main reason we're doing that is we'd already bought the tickets and due to the pandemic and whatever, we ended up with these vouchers we couldn't use. So we we decided to do one more trip across um, the Atlantic. But I would love to go back to Canada. There's so much I'd love to see there. Um, I'm definitely going to California again, especially as I've now got um, a listener and um, a very experienced birder who's in my Facebook group who's out in California. And, and the tales he tells about what he sees is just amazing. So I want to go there next year. I'd like to get out to America because very kindly the um the solar system has put on a totally solar eclipse my son for my birthday. He's made us promise that we're going. So I've been yeah. looking at the map to see where it where's the best place. And I'm thinking maybe Texas might yeah, be good. Where so are we'll you have to have it in Texas. We're gonna try and get to Texas. That's yeah. where the I think that's where the totality is going to be. You yes. know, we went to the eclipse in Oregon a couple of years ago because it was something we'd always wanted to see. We we went to the one in Cornwall in 1999 and uh, it was cloudy. So we had some of the experience. We, I'll, I'll try not cry again but when we went to Oregon we had the most perfect day we were really really lucky because the days leading up to it there were lots of wildfires and we were just in smoke conditions and on the day of the eclipse the wind changed direction and we had blue skies and we had we were able to see the eclipse and it was just fabulous but it only lasted like one minute 40 seconds because of where we were so when I found out that the, there was this going to be this total eclipse on my 60th birthday. Amazing. Um, I thought, well, that's very kind of the solar system to put that on for me. I really ought to go and see it. So we were looking to see, because it's going from Mexico up to Canada. So I was looking to see where the path is greatest. And I think Texas is going to be it. I know from when we went to Oregon, you know, it's going to be really expensive to go there. If you, yeah. if you don't, if you can't book in advance, you know, you're going to be paying through the roof for accommodation. Oh. So, you know, it does need to be planned well in advance. Right, yeah. Um, so that's April next, uh, next year that happens. Conveniently, um, as well as your 60th birthday, it falls in the school Easter holidays. So it must oh, really so be more expensive. It'd be more expensive. <laughs> yeah. But that's the only time I can travel with yes. them. So I better start, uh, I actually cried on the uh, I'd love to go one love to go to Oregon I've got some good friends there from uh, childhood that I'd love to see but um I I cried at the 1999 eclipse I was organizing a festival there called the total eclipse festival actually there were quite a few festivals planned for the the, the peninsula you know down in Cornwall and um I was oh god I was in my early early 20s and I'd just come back from living in Europe for a little while and I was in doing the music PR for this festival based in in Brighton normally but they did one for Cornwall and actually well, everything went wrong with these festivals it sort of bankrupted Harvey Goldsmith you know massive festival promoter he's come back now since but it was really really it just all went wrong and on the day of the eclipse as you said it was completely cloudy and we I don't know if it, I probably did have a mobile at the moment but there wasn't a lot of communication and I was 
I had to go and see some artist thing. I don't know. Uh, don't know why, but I at the moment of the eclipse, which I think was 11 yeah. a.m. in the morning, as I recall, yeah. because we planned this whole thing about it. I ended up, I was on my own, you know, with none of my friends, none of my people that had come down there on my own on top of this hill. And with with just a few people dotted around. And this, even though you couldn't see it, you know, the sky went I went sort of dark and cloudy and everything went quiet and I sat there and had a few tears of my own you know on this hill because it just felt so awesome you know with the with the not the American use of the words you know so no no it really is all inspiring and you feel really connected to nature because you can feel Hmm. you can feel the animals around you I mean they they say about you know the birds stop singing and because they think it's getting towards nighttime and and Absolutely. You still had that, even though it was over very quickly and it was cloudy. So you couldn't see the thing when we we're in Oregon and we we saw the whole thing. Um, I've got, I've got a video. It's on my Facebook page. I'll, you know, <laughs> I'll point you out. I'll point it out to you. But I was just, I was just in floods of tears straight away, just seeing the disc going across the sun. And then that final moment just before it disappears and, and you get that diamond ring effect and then it's just dark and you can see the corona and you can see stars and 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 for where we were we were on a golf course in Oregon um but there was a a big event not too far away like you know maybe half a mile away and the cheers and the calls from those people added to this sort of very primitive feel about what it must have been like for people who didn't even know what was happening and the sun disappeared it just really pulls to you inside it takes you back into and yeah tears again such emotional beings but yeah I'll I'll see you know I I know I can guarantee I can put money on it that you're a better organizer and planner than me so if you could just tell me where I need to be next April I'll see you there (laughs) I will I will give you some give you some tips (laughs) thank you yeah give me some travel tips that's what I need Susie thank you so much for coming on the big travel podcast where can we find you give us your links and all of that um well I'm my oh my god is- hang on hang on forget <laughs> all of that i've forgotten to ask my last question okay um my last question is always about music you can tell me that in a second my last question is always about music because i very much believe that music goes hand in hand and i always ask my guests to name one song that reminds them of a special memorable time and place of travel what is that song and what is the memory i mean realistically if i had the money i'd be playing these songs at the end but i'm not because we can't afford that um so yeah to name one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel what is that song and what is the memory (laughs) i know Um, (laughs) it's a biggie it's a biggie i absolutely love body tyler's totally eclipse of the heart oh that's such a coincidence (laughs) and and i have i have sung that quite a lot of times like when i've been on my own on beaches because my husband does photography in the early mornings and stuff and sometimes i'm wandering around on my own and there's no one around and i I just, you know, love the opportunity to sing, but I don't do it much because I live on an estate and it's, you know, I haven't got soundproofing, so I can't can't sing and let people have to listen to it. So I'm very much into the 80s kind of big songs from from women, love all that kind of stuff. But I'm oh, sorry, totally clips the heart. <laughs> I have no street cred when it comes to singing. Well, no, I absolutely songs. love it. I don't. I love every, every bit of music, the cool and the not so cool. But uh, I can totally visualise you on a beach somewhere when you're in the morning, while you're, your husband's doing photography and you're there going, uh, yeah. Nothing <laughs> Blasting out. <laughs> Brilliant. I love that. Oh, yes. How karaoke. How embarrassing this is. Uh, when I first got my own mic for podcasting and a recorder, 
I absolutely did some karaoke indoors of like, you know, just sing. <laughs> did I actually, because I sing, I love singing, but I don't know if I can sing. No one has ever said, oh, that's awful, shut up. But at the same time, I've only ever sung publicly once and it was as part of a group. So, you know, it wasn't just me singing, but I absolutely love, um, I, I love singing. I haven't done it for a very long time because conditions haven't been right. But at least five years ago, when I first got my first mic, I, oh my God, I've got a mic. It's not a hairbrush. I can sing, you know. You know, um, what, if we live to- nearer to each other, I'd totally take drag you into a karaoke bar one night. <laughs> oh, I'd <laughs> love, I'd love that. to, I would love to try karaoke, but not in front of public first because I've not ever done it. But I feel like I could. So once I, you know, I'm, I'm happy yeah, to do it. You can do, do it in small booths, can't you? You can even oh, get can a booth for two, like in London, go to Lucky Voice or something. You and your husband even could just go to Oh, he wouldn't. But oh, well, we, yeah. we should do that. We should right, do that. I didn't know that was even a thing. Let's, I'm gonna, well, let's speak to Helen and we'll organize yes. a podcasters meetup. Uh, Helen Sonson. And of go course, karaoke. And, uh, yeah, and do some karaoke <laughs> in London. Done. Right. Where can we find you, Susie? Give us a uh, link. So my show is the Casual Birder podcast. And so you can find me at casualbirder.com that's my website you can listen to the, the shows there you can listen to any of the shows you know wherever you listen to podcasts I'm there but if you go to casualbirder.com you'll find all my links and everything and you know website. and if you want to get out and see birds go out and see them and if you want to tell me about them tell me about them because I love hearing about other people's experiences with birds brilliant thank you so much for and listen to my show and hear yeah about. no absolutely we will do <laughs> Thank you so much, Susie. I hope everyone was as inspired by that conversation as I was. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be back very soon with more fantastic guests on the Big Travel Podcast. Podcast.